Good morning and welcome. It's beautiful to hear all the chatter um, leading right up until we start. Uh, just speaks to, to the community and relationship that is already present here. The Spirit of God invites all to worship the Creator at this time and in our places which dwell on Treaty 1 territory, the ancestral lands of the Métis Nation, the Dakota, the Cree, the OJ Cree, Dene, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe. Uh, just a few things to highlight from the bulletin for the life of the congregation. There will be formation following the service, and I'll give you a little more details on that later. Um, May 10th to 12th is church camp. So there's more details in the bulletin, but everybody is invited to attend. And lastly, on February 22nd, we have Ash Wednesday, and so there will be um, two brief services here at 12.15 and 7.30 uh, that you are welcome to attend. Please join us to sing number one in your hymnal, Summoned by the God Who Made Us. Let's stand to sing together.
seated. Oh God, you are the gathering one who calls us into community with all people to bring justice and hope, freedom and truth. You are the gathering one who calls us into community with the whole creation to live in harmony, to cherish and renew. Let us worship the God who makes us one. We'll be singing, Lord, you give the great commission. You may find the words um, in your hymnal number 774. However, be warned, if you do choose to look in your hymnal, the music will not be the same. We will be using the same text to sing um, with a familiar tune. Please stand. last Sunday, we're going to be praying the breath prayer together this morning. So make yourself comfortable, close your eyes if that feels right for you, and take a few slow, deep breaths. Begin by praying in silence 
simply sitting in the presence of God, thinking about God. Now take a moment to consider your life, that which has taken your thoughts, attention, and energy these days. Using a name that feels comfortable for you, address God. After doing so, name your desire for what you need most at this time, given what you've thought about. It might be finding joy, peace, or patience. It could be losing anger, bitterness, selfishness. With this in mind, breathe in and out. As you breathe in, as you breathe in address God with the name you have chosen. As you breathe out, ask God for your need. Lord, thank you that you work in us, giving us what we need for life and living in Christ. Amen. I would like to invite the kids to come forward for a puppet show. kids hi kids oh my spring is around the corner isn't it let's call Finn out and see if he has any spring in his step ready one two three Finn the dragon hi Penny hi kids well it's official what is I ate a clownfish you ate a clownfish? Yeah, it tasted funny. Oh, Finn, you're krilling me now. Oh, Penny, that was bad. Eely, eely bad. You should really walk the plankton for that one. Why? I thought it was a fantastic pun. 
Finn, these are god-awful puns. <sighs> Nonsense! We can never be guilty of too many fish puns. We should definitely scale back on the fish puns. That's impossible, Penny. I'll bait we can do this forever. Hey, that reminds me of the Bible story today. Wait, what? It does? Yep. Jesus had large crowds of people following him. Thousands of people. They listened to his teachings, but after a while, the crowd got hungry. Huh, hungry. Did Jesus have any goldfish crackers for the crowds? You know, he kind of did. He had fish and bread for them. Oh, I'm glad. I hope Jesus led by example and shared. He did, except there were only five loaves of bread and two fishes. And the disciples said, hey, Jesus, there's not enough food for everybody. Five loaves and two fish were supposed to feed thousands of people? That's impossible! Exactly, but Jesus said grace and told his disciples to start handing out food. So they did. And what happened when the food ran out? Guess what, Finn? It didn't. <gasps> there was enough food for everyone. Enough for everyone? Yep. Jesus was trying to show us that we live in a world of abundance, not scarcity. There, and there is enough food for everyone if we all share. There is enough for everyone. Amazing. But wait, there's more. More? How can that be? Yep, because it's not only food that there's abundance of. There's also an abundance of love, of grace, of peace, of kindness, of forgiveness, or mercy for everyone. We just can't run out of this uh, stuff. That sounds amazing. It really is. Amazing like our fish jokes this morning? Cod, we could be any punnier. <laughs> Tuna in next week to find out. Okay, kids, you can go back to children's church now. Bye. Let's continue singing with number 758. Again, the music will be different than what is in your hymnal, but the words are on the screen. Who will speak a word of warning? Let's stand to sing together.
Mark 6, 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Good morning. <clears throat> Am I on? Yes, I'm on. Good morning. Twenty years ago, in the summer of 2003, I was teaching in the city of Kharkov, Ukraine, 40 kilometers from the Russian border. <clears throat> While there, I was asked a day or two in advance to preach in a church one Sunday morning. Today, I will be giving you the exact same thoughts that I gave to them, word for word, verbatim. Obviously, it has nothing to do with the Ukraine's, uh, Ukrainians currently being brutally invaded by Russia other than to stand with them and to actually hold them in our thoughts and prayers. So, put yourself in their shoes for the next few minutes. Imagine yourself sitting in an old, packed, sweaty sanctuary, listening to a foreigner being translated by the woman standing beside him, and living in a country that regained its independence from the communist Soviet Union only a decade previously. Okay? I greet you, I greet you in the name of God the Father who makes us one family. Though we are brothers and sisters in Christ, I come to you as a stranger from Canada who is keenly aware of the cultural and socioeconomic differences between us. 
But I want to reflect for a few moments this morning on ways in which we may be similar, not just in our faith, but in our thinking. And ways in which our common, fallen mode of thinking and living is contrary to what Jesus taught. I understand that in many ways, people of Ukraine want to catch up with and be like people in the West. For example, the West is often envied for its affluence and individualism. But I want to suggest that those aspirations, as well as the manner in which they are most effectively achieved, may be profoundly unchristian. The fact that we in the West have relatively more of those particular qualities of life, and you may have relatively less of them, makes us different. But the fact that we both want them makes us the same. We may be on opposite ends of the continuum, but we're still on the same continuum. And it is that whole continuum, that common mode of thinking and living, which Jesus rebukes. He calls us to something better, something higher, something more like the mode of thinking and living the members of the Trinity practice. When Jesus performed the miracle of the loaves and the fish in the feeding of the 5,000, he taught his disciples, through both his words and his actions, about two distinct orientations found in life. One orientation might be called the assumption of scarcity, and the other, the assumption of abundance. In the story of feeding the 5,000, the disciples assume the orientation of scarcity, while Jesus bases his ministry on the assumption of abundance. It seems to me that both Ukrainians and Canadians also assume the orientation of scarcity, whereas God still calls us both to live out the orientation of abundance. Let me suggest that both the quality and conduct of our lives depends heavily on whether we assume a world of scarcity or a world of abundance. Do we inhabit a universe where the basic things that people need, from food and shelter to a sense of competence and being loved, are ample in the world? Or is this a universe where such goods are in short supply, only, available only to those who have the power to beat everyone else to the store? If we're honest with ourselves as individuals and with our respective cultures, we are forced to conclude that the assumption of scarcity dominates our orientation. Because we have chosen to live in a competitive world where scarcity becomes a natural outcome of achieving abundance. How else can you explain the fact that competition, which is a way of allocating scarcity, rather than cooperation, which is a way of sharing abundance. How else can you explain the fact that competition, rather than cooperation, is widely regarded as the only way to conduct our affairs, to make good things happen? How else can we explain the fact that the West so fearfully clings to its habit of over-consuming the world's resources as if letting other people have a fair share would mean lifestyle suicide for the West? How else can we explain the fact that Ukrainians, for the most part, are envious of that lifestyle? 
At every level of our lives, the assumption of scarcity, not abundance, threatens to deform our attitudes and our actions. Yet more tragically, every time we act on the scarcity assumption, we do create a world in which scarcity becomes a cruel reality. When North Americans, who comprise some 7% of the world's population, consume over a third of the world's resources, they create a real scarcity for others not living in the West. When employers insist on pitting people against each other for raises and promotions rather than rewarding people for creativity, workplaces become snake pits in which people will do nearly anything to survive. When teachers give grades based on a fixed distribution, education becomes a process of progressive discouragement for too many students, and only a small elite end up believing they actually have any ability worthwhile. In the story of the loaves and the fish, Jesus makes a dramatic attempt to break people of the habit of assuming scarcity by revealing the reality of abundance. The drama begins when the disciples come to Jesus and suggest that he dismiss the crowd to nearby villages to buy dinner for themselves. By proposing that people buy their own meal, the disciples expose the fact that they are operating on the assumption of scarcity and believe that food should be distributed competitively through the impersonal intermediary abstraction of value called money. Cash exchange makes it so much easier for us to ignore the gross inequities in the distribution of food and shelter around the world. If governments were to line people up each month and give a few of them truckloads of food while giving the majority barely enough to survive, the inequity would be so visible, so maddening, that revolutions would ensue. Instead, we have our economic system arranged for a few people to receive truckloads of money while the majority receive much less. When we exchange our dollars for whatever food they will buy, the transaction is so veiled that only the hungry and the powerless see what's really going on. The impersonal medium of money has so distanced us from injustice that that there is little pressure for change. In the story... The disciples of Jesus are convinced that scarcity is the order of the day and therefore want people to buy their own dinners so that the cash economy can obscure the sense that there is apparently too little food to go around. The second thing happening in the drama is related to the first. The disciples want the people to be dispersed. Send them away to go into the country and villages round about. In other words, the disciples want the people to compete separately and individually for scarce food. Rather than join together in a community that has the potential for sharing, for generating abundance in the middle of scarcity. Note something very important here about the social consequences of our patterns of thinking. 
There is a powerful correlation between the assumption of scarcity and the decline of community, a correlation that runs both ways. If we allow the scarcity assumption to dominate our thinking, we will act in individualistic, competitive ways that destroy community. And if we destroy community, where creating and sharing with others generates abundance, there will be more evidence to convince us that scarcity, that the scarcity assumption is valid. When we are in community, many things that we think we must buy in the marketplace suddenly become available free of charge. For example, some of the personal attention and care that many people in the West now purchase from professional caregivers and therapists may be available from members of a community organized to offer such services. Simple maintenance and repair services, often purchased in the fragmented society of the West, could be exchanged in a community of diverse skills. Community and abundance go hand in hand. The two words are, are almost synonymous. Okay. Here's the beginning of the miracle. Jesus has a very interesting response to the disciples. He says, you give them something to eat. With the word you, Jesus turns the tables on his disciples. He places the problem of the hunger of the people into the hands of his disciples. That's your problem. With the word give, Jesus is also turning the tables. Instead of allowing the disciples to deal with the problem of dinner impersonally through a societal system of cash exchange, Jesus names it as a problem to be solved through an act of generosity. Implicit in his words is the understanding that both community and abundance can be generated when we turn from buying to giving, from make, making people compete to offering ourselves. But the disciples, like us, are slow to learn. <clears throat> they respond by saying, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They continue to assume that cash exchange is the answer to the problem. Jesus continues to enlighten his disciples and us by saying, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go see. And here is the crucial turning point in our transition from assuming scarcity to seeing the potentials of abundance. It consists in the simple but rare act of looking at what we already have, at the gifts and resources that are immediately available to us. Jesus is teaching us that the first step in any action that assumes abundance and wants to amplify that abundance is to perceive and receive those resources already present to us in the abundance of life itself. Now, here's the true miracle in the feeding of the multitude. When the disciples discover that they have five loaves and two fish with which to feed 5,000 hungry people, 
it seems like they have a classic example of scarcity on their hands. But Jesus doesn't hesitate. He gathers the crowd into small groups, has them sit down on the grass. He takes the loaves and fish and blesses them. He breaks them into pieces and gives them to his disciples to set before the people. When all the people have eaten and are satisfied, twelve baskets full of leftovers remain. So how does this miracle happen? You must remember that this is uh, the same Jesus that refused to make bread by supernatural power when challenged to do so by the devil. Though the motivation in this case would have been entirely different, of course, I still don't think this was the cheap magic trick the devil was looking for. Because if it were, the devil would be off in the distance chuckling, Ah, see Jesus, I won. (laughs) I got you to do it. I doubt that Jesus would sacrifice his integrity in order to perform a cheap magic trick for a larger human audience. Now, I have no trouble believing that Jesus did, in fact, invoke his supernatural powers to physically multiply the loaves and the fish. That's how we usually read the story. But if that is how the story ends, then the disciples have been right in assuming scarcity. And the only abundance humans can experience is the abundance of God's supernatural heaven. Here on earth, we humans should then go on looking out for ourselves, scratching for whatever we can get, without the kind of regard for our neighbors that would actually alter our scratching much. And we should be content with the fact that the one with the biggest claws will get the most. God may intervene miraculously on occasion, but not being able to rely on such interventions regularly, we should carry on with our assumptions of scarcity. We should understand that when Jesus said that he had come to give us life and life more abundantly, he meant that in a purely spiritual sense, or in the heaven hereafter sense. Nothing more. But I want to suggest a more radical interpretation of how the story ends. An interpretation that suggests a greater miracle than altering the laws of physical nature. What if the miracle is really that Jesus changed human attitudes? If only for the moment. What if the miracle was really changing those people instead of merely filling their bellies? Don't we often say that the most profound answer to prayer is to change the person who prays? What if what Jesus did, instead of supernaturally multiplying the loaves and the fish, was to act and teach us to act on the assumption of abundance? Note what the story tells us he actually does. He divides the crowd into smaller face-to-face groups. Well, that's a basic principle of every good community and church organizer. This clustering of people into more intimate settings where everyday miracles have a chance to happen. 
It is in such community where all kinds of abundance resides because it is together that we have many resources. Jesus demonstrates that people interacting with each other face-to-face in small group community, not in, the, not in the anonymity of large crowds, is the context in which the realization of abundance can replace the assumption of scarcity. Even more important, the very experience of community is itself an experience of abundance in the most important aspects of life. What may have happened, what may, what may have happened is that Jesus and the disciples simply modeled the act of sharing for the crowd by giving thanks for what little they had and then offering it to any who wanted to eat. As this happened, perhaps the people, now gathered in small groups, admitted that, though they had earlier hidden it from each other, they too had food they could share with one another. Perhaps they found themselves moved to emulate the generosity of Jesus and the disciples rather than hoard their own scarce resources. It likely would have been difficult to do otherwise, sitting there on the grass in a circle of family and friends and neighbors, watching Jesus and his beleaguered little band of followers giving away their own meager rations. Suddenly, through a community ignited by an example of generosity, scarcity turns into abundance. This may have happened not supernaturally by changing physical nature, but by the miracle of people changing their paradigms. Changing from an assumption of scarcity to a realization that in God there's always abundance of all that we really need. The story ends not by saying that every belly was full, but that quote, they all ate and were satisfied. There's no doubt that satisfaction is a greater achievement and a more virtuous human condition than fullness. I mean, not even fullness guarantees satisfaction. To be satisfied is to make no further demands, to realize that enough is enough. Though there was more food available, well, 12 baskets full, (laughs) perhaps the people realized that they did not need to be full and that gorging themselves would only hurt and debase themselves. Perhaps they realized that their glass was neither half empty nor half full, but just twice as big as it needed to be. Because the people had come with an orientation to scarcity that thrives on dissatisfaction and breeds it as well, the experience of all being satisfied instead of full is perhaps the greatest miracle that Jesus performed that day. So I ask you now, 
How might, how might our lives individually, collectively, nationally, internationally, be transformed by a shift in paradigms, by abandoning an assumption of scarcity and a belief that individual competition is in our best interests, and adopting a perspective instead that relies on the cooperation of community and a trust in a God of abundance who wants to bless all, not just through the unlimited resources of distant heaven, but through the unrealized resources of shared earth. I suspect some of you are by now thinking that Ukraine has already recently experienced communism and it failed. But I hope you realize that the small, face-to-face, caring communities God calls us to live in are a far cry from Soviet state socialism, which we call communism. I also hope you realize that the capitalism of the West, built as it is on the assumption of scarcity, is no more virtuous an alternative to communism. Unbridled capitalism can be at least as cold, unjust, and spiritually destructive, in a word, evil, as communism can be. Paul in Philippians 3 seems to have the modern West in mind when he says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction because their God is their stomach, in other words, their appetites generally, and their glory, which is the fullness of their appetites, is their shame. I'll read that again. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, their appetites, and their glory, which is the fullness of their appetites, is their shame. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. You Ukrainians would not be wise or virtuous to become like us in the West in every way. Because our economic systems are bathed in the assumption of scarcity, which then seeps into every other area of our life, your best opportunity to live out of an ethic of abundance is through the local church. You should know that I see far more of that here already than I do in my homeland back in Canada. In fact, your churches are an inspiration to us who visit you. So, keep building what you have begun, and may God the Father soon see all his children in more abundant family life. Deanu. Let us respond with the song, 
Take my life and let it be, number 759. Let's stand to sing. As I read the congregational prayer, I will allow pause for you to supplement your own prayer. Loving God, your generosity of grace knows no bounds. It is unfathomable in depth, immeasurable in breadth. You disturb us, provoke us, challenge us to do the same, to offer our resources, our gifts, our passions, to make right relations, to feed the hungry, to resist evil, to stand for justice, to work for the dignity for all. We pray that you soften our hearts and open us, to wa- open us wider to serve you with energy and imagination. We pray now for the brokenness we are aware of in this world. We pray for Shirley Joy and Virginia Fast, who are palliating. We pray for others in our congregation and those we know that suffer from illness of all kinds. 
We pray now for the concerns that simmer in our hearts. We pray for the prayers that we have no words for. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus, our brother, our teacher, our redeemer. Amen. And then we're going to jump into our offertory prayer. Lord, you abundantly lavish your love upon us. We want to respond by offering to you from what we have been given. Accept our offering in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sing together one more time. Help us to help each other. Number 722 in your hymnals, and let's stand.
reminder that there will be formation following the service. Come help us brainstorm the possibilities of creating a system that will enable those of us who attend Grace to share our skills, services, equipment, etc. in everyday life, an optional, limited, non-monetary community economy. And just a reminder as well, for those who are not staying for formation, if you can move to the far side um, of the foyer, just so you don't have the noise in the back disrupting uh, formation. God who created the world. Jesus, the Son given for the world. Holy Spirit, ever present in the world. Be with us in our worship that we may know the fullness of the Holy One. As God lives in triune community, so may we live in community with God and each other. Amen.